one of the new things this year is um, plant-based cream for your strawberries. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Connolly, taking you through another weekly wrap of stories from in and around the sports industry. Hope you're well. Very happy to be back. Very happy to welcome back, as ever, Sports Pro News Editor Tom Bassam. Hello, Tom. Hello, Owen. How's it going? Not too bad, Tom. Not too bad. Hope you're well, too. And joining us once again is Sports Pro Media and Tech Editor Steve McCaskill. Hello, Steve. Hi, Owen. How's it going? Very well, as I just said. Um, you did. <laughs> um, Steve is here, so there must be some kind of media or tech angle to some of the news. And indeed, it is Sports Tech Investment Week uh, across all of Sports Pro's channels. Uh, there'll be a bit of that flavour on this podcast. We're going to be talking about the latest innovations at the championships at Wimbledon uh, and a busy few days for soccer in the US with some World Cup host city announcements and uh, deal involving some kind of fruit company. Tom, very quickly, what is on the Sports Pro site and around Sports Pro channels to make up Sports Tech Investment Week? Great question. Uh, really good opportunity for me to just tell everyone about how good our content is, really. So yesterday, yesterday being Monday or a couple of days ago, in when you're listening to this podland, Sam Cart wrote a very well-measured um, piece basically setting out where the where the tech investment scene is for that we relied on some interesting data from our friends at sports tech x to just sort of illustrate really where where people are in the sports industry are spending their money what the sort of buzzy startups that are um are getting that backing and receiving interest from the industry then today being tuesday or a couple of days ago in Podland, I really need to work on this. <laughs> we published an interview that I did with Christian Holzer, who is the MD of Sportex Solutions, the joint venture between Delta Tray and the DFL, basically, which is all around Sportex investment strategy and how they go about acquiring new startups or bits of technology to help bolster out their offering in the data capture and, I guess, soccer officiating spaces. Then... For the rest of this week, we've got contributions from the guys over again at Sports Deck X, Thomas Alomes, who's a regular columnist. And then on Friday is a piece that I have written, which is with Tim Yaga, who's the CEO of Eintracht Tech, which is wholly owned subsidiary of the recent Europa League winners, which produces basically like a lot of kind of in-house solutions which help them with their day-to-day operations. So think stuff like ticketing, e-commerce venue management the idea basically being that the club wanted to produce those things in order to one save money on investing on those outside and also then that they could sell them to generate revenue for the club as a smaller club in germany they are not able to compete financially with the likes of Borussia dortmund and Bayern munich so they thought about a different way to try and do that and it's a interesting approach to say the least i don't think there's many other many other teams in europe if at all doing that so yeah watch out for that on friday that that wraps up sports tech investment week for us uh, there'll be a couple of other bits and pieces that are out on the way podcasts etc but um i think those are the main bits to get your teeth into lovely stuff and a fascinating sector to get amongst this week um and there will be more themed weeks on the sports pro site and across uh, sports pros other outlets 
in the months ahead, I think Women's Sports Week is the one up next. That'll be sometime in July. Don't have that in front of me, but you know, you'll you'll hear about it again. But anyway, let's move on uh, to this week's podcast. And you know, the sun is shining here in London, but we are all speculating fatalistically about the rain. So it must be time for tennis at Wimbledon. And we are indeed just a few days away from the championships back in full flow for 2022 after a couple of COVID-affected years, or in fact, a year where it didn't happen at all, and then a COVID-affected year uh, in 2021. Steve McCaskill, you were at SW19 a couple of days ago now, or a day ago as we were talking, where you were taking in some of this year's innovations in presentation and fan experience, all that kind of stuff. Um, what did you learn? Yeah, so it was quite nice to be back at the at the grounds, which are a uh, reasonably local to me anyway. So it's always nice to to be somewhere where I don't have to to get the transport and walk along. And it was a just the record, a wonderfully sunny day, which um, meant it's one of the rare occasions in my career I've got sunburnt while working. <laughs> but it bodes well for the tournament. So yeah, mostly mostly a wonderful day to to hear about what Wimbledon is doing for this year's tournament and so Wimbledon it's not unique in sporting terms and it is a commercial entity it does put pride on commercialism but its main ambition is to be the most prestigious of the four grand slams and basically everything it does comes back to that whether it's how it sells sponsorship there's no everything is subtle around the court it's all partnerships well in advance of what happened in the rest of the, the sports industry and what it's been doing with ibm is is part of that it wants to bring the tournament to as many people as possible it wants to capture the traditions of the tournament and send them to wherever you might be in the world because lots of people won't go to one within, um for, for a number of reasons so this year was an expansion of what they've been doing in in recent years and the focus on that has tended to be around artificial intelligence and using the, this vast amount of data that they have to create insights for either tennis fans or people who just enjoy the tournament. I mean, there's lots of people who don't really follow tennis or even sport that will still be interested in Wimbledon, and that's part of its its whole appeal. So this year, the focus is on those casual fans. It's about engaging fans that won't watch any of the tennis in the entire year. And there's, and there's lots of people people like that. And I was chatting to Alexandra Willis at the All England Club, and they said that a few years ago they had this penny drop moment that a lot of the stuff they were doing wasn't really targeting that that group of fans, and there was more they could do. So this year what they're doing, they're still doing all the same sort of AI analysis that they're doing, but they're breaking that down a bit more. So they're going to, it's sort of something in the middle. It's not just providing stats and it's not just providing that insight. It's providing visibility into that middle bit, like why it matters that the surface type is going to have an impact on on what they think will happen during the game, their recent record, their their world ranking. And this will be in the app. It will be on the the website. And I think occasionally some of these insights do find their way into the broadcast as well. They are made available to the commentators. That's one of the headline features and they're also expanding social things so a couple of years ago they did something called i think it was hill versus the world where they, they gauge the opinions of people on henman hill um it is called that it will never be called anything else <laughs> and then everyone else everyone around the world and see who was saying what what they were predicting and so now encouraging people to do that more on social media with something called have your say and then the final part of that is and, and what wimbledon sort of hopes is that 
people who don't follow tennis for the rest of the year will start to learn more about the players, the players that aren't Nadal, the players that aren't Djokovic or, or Serena, and they'll, and they'll develop new favourites. And so one of the things that one has been doing for several years, and this is actually very useful if you do work in production, is AI highlights. So they're clipping the highlights, they're using AI to determine crowd sentiment, exciting points, and then automatically editing that into packages. So this year, if you go through these stats, you find a player you like or a player that it thinks you might like, it will then start to deliver you these personalized packages so you can learn more about the players. So it's more about accessibility this year. There's nothing that's truly shaking things up. But this is a long partnership. Things are added every single year. It's a bit like a new version of Football Manager, for example. There's stuff they're working on over several years, stuff we introduce every 12 months. But I think it's really good to see things getting getting back to normal. As you say, two years ago, we didn't have a tournament. Last year, it was restricted. So it is good to have it back. There is one thing that, that um, the club did say that, that sort of resonated in it. Wimbledon is about tradition, and they see technology as a way of not competing with these traditions, but making it making them relevant for, for, for a modern audience. So if you are following a tournament, whether it's on TV or you download the app, I think there'll be a couple of new things for you to see, and there's some things you may have missed out on before. So... Yeah, interesting stuff as always with IBM and Wimbledon. Yeah, and you know, I think you've um, woven together a few parts of the, a few strands of the Wimbledon story that we will kind of tease out um, over the next few minutes. But AI kind of helping turn data into storytelling is is quite a, a prevalent industry trend at the moment, isn't it? Where you're thinking we have all of this stuff. And we need to think, what who is the end user going to be? And obviously, there are going to be people who are interested in sport who are particularly adept at going through the, all of that data or even going through some advanced visualizations and working out you know, what they want out of it. I think like the football tactics community and stuff being, being an example of that or people in cricket analytics or, or what have you. But AI is kind of helping to contextualize some of that data and i think that's an interesting use case to to say here is the story of a game that you might not be able to follow kind of through some of the statistics that you're being served up for want of a better expression by the broadcast and here also is some information about certain players because as we're going to come on to i think wimbledon is about some of the stories of players who aren't the superstars even though it ends up being the superstars kind of on that final weekend absolutely i mean the thing about tennis and a tournament like Wimbledon is actually quite a labour-intensive operation with that, that many games, that many courts. Think of all the the various uh, umpires, line judges you have, and even on each on each court there is someone recording recording this data, and it it's a lot of work to get that out as quickly as, as quickly as possible when you just miss something on the outer court. Um, and the good thing about something like tennis is because they do have this data that. They're able to see points um, and some some of the intention of those points. So things like winners, um, aces, um, unforced errors. You're able to create that picture a bit bit more easily. And it, again, if you've got video, if you've got camera, you can marry all, all that together. Look and say, okay, was this interesting? Create those create those videos. And again, you can create a story. You'll be able to see something that's, that's just being missed because just it's impossible to keep across everything. And I don't think we're going to get to the point where, well, at least not not for a while, where we've got AI writing match reports. I mean, I, I think I've seen a couple that have been written for baseball, for example, which is a, 
um, a similar data heavy heavy sport and there's a lot of games so people might gloss over it but it, it's certainly about creating a story that would either be missed just because no one's there to watch it or, or be it's, it's impossible to see without that data mm. just turning it around a bit part of the kind of sports tech space and particularly when bigger brands are involved and in, you know ibm obviously invited you along because they wanted you and some of your colleagues to talk about them. <laughs> but, you know, I think there are other big tech organizations who are investing in AI. AWS are an obvious example. As, um, you know, that's partly springs to mind because Tom was, was talking about Eintracht Frankfurt and, and German football, where they're uh, involved again in that kind of data storytelling aspect of things. What do you make with your kind of tech journalist hat on the competition in this area and the effectiveness of sport, you know, as kind of an arena for some of these companies to... to to showcase what they're what they're up to well one of the ways i used to pitch stories was like this was to say it's a it's a really interesting way of discussing what can be quite boring technology so most people won't know about the differences of of cloud platforms or the the variation between between the products so again you've got this great showcase people are going to be able to relate to it and it's great visibility if you've got a sponsorship element on there as well sports just a great way of just saying look this is what it can do in the in the real world it's all i mean it's wonderful talking about latency service level agreements which guarantee the reliability of a, of a certain application which is important for business but people don't want to read about this all the all the time so if you're able to say look we can do this for formula one team we can do this for wimbledon we can do this for your business or even better this is what we learned doing this for wimbledon look what we could do, how we could apply this to your to your business so it's definitely a great showcase. It's definitely a great marketing tool. And one of the things, and I must admit, I have been a little bit skeptical over this over the years, is they see this as a genuine business um, because even though these business, businesses are quite high profile, a lot of them may have neglected or may not have been further along in terms of how they're using technology. They might be beyond other industries. But they are saying, look, we think there's actually some, some value here because they are recognizing the, the role that tech can play and we'd like to get some some of that market and I guess if you are able to get some of that commercial value in there as well that might help make the economics uh, sorry speaking the economics of, of the deal but it's, it's a very competitive space you mentioned AWS there's others like SAP which are very keen on on, on this Microsoft Oracle I mean I, I, I could go on they're all actively interested in this space and and sport provides a platform for them to talk about it Steve, just a kind of quick one for me. Sometimes I feel like there's a thing about data and the sports industry loves to tell us that fans love data. Um, and it's almost got to the point where it's like, is that just groupthink? And actually, do the fans even really care? Like, I, I find it interesting, but I'm not one of those people that will spend hours researching uh, how many, I don't know, uh, what, what, Eden Hazard's actual XG was for a season or something like that because I I can I can I can watch sport and I can see it uh, and I can see that he's been rubbish and I don't need like I don't need someone to tell me buy some data points do you feel like there's a bit of a thing where this is being pushed on upon us as a thing that oh no we should care about that it's important or do you actually think that I'm just a bit of an anomaly and don't really care that much I don't think you're an anomaly but I do think there are people out there that that care again I think it might be a generational thing so I think people younger than myself might be interested in these stats. I mean, I'm going to use football as an example because that's the most high-profile one, the one that I've um, seen some anecdotal evidence of people that do care about these stats. And they use it to compare players, XG being another one that's sort of 
come into general football discourse. And I see people on football Twitter discussing discussing these stats. They freely share them. I have a feeling that that may be influenced by FIFA. So I would call them. Let's let's say the for want of a better term, that the, the power users of this data. I think they they see that as part of how they enjoy sport, specifically football. I then think there's something at the other end of people who don't necessarily want to see the data, but they like learning what this data can tell them. They don't want to see the numbers. They want to know, okay, I think they might like something like win probability or um, what might happen from this point or if you're able to create a relevant stat about um, backhand returns or, or what have you. I think they like to see the patterns. I think you, where you may be onto something is that it's just something that people like to hear or like to be shown that they're doing they're doing something. And I think stats for stats say it can be a bit it might not be as useful but i definitely think it, it, it's there and i do think we are told that line quite a lot i think it's just finding useful applications for that data that goes beyond statistical nerds i've had a i don't know a bit of a reckoning with this in my own head just thinking about like why is it that i, I constantly hear that stats are what engage fans and like actually what i think engages fans is interesting action and then that could be interesting content in terms of an interesting video or it could be something good happening like in a in a sporting environment like that you that you enjoy watching i'm keen to explore i think and find out really whether or not like this is something that we're just being increasingly fed by companies that are just doing big data partnerships because as you said it works for their business model or whether or not this is actually something that fans want the, the one thing i would say that i think needs to be done better is the visualization of this data so I think if you get a graphical overlay or show what that means in a more visual format, I definitely think that adds thing, adds to the broadcast, it adds to, to whatever app you're using. I think that that is getting better as well. And I think that's something that companies should work on. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I'm always told the future of sport is mobile first. And yet I hate watching sport on my mobile. So <laughs> there is that. Maybe we're just uh, three increasingly older blokes talking on a podcast. <laughs> well we're all increasingly older tom but um i've definitely noticed anecdotally fans uh using data or when i say fans maybe fan media more than than fans just having conversations amongst themselves but using data to kind of illustrate a point because that data is there and they can talk about so and so has made this number of progressions with the ball or progressive passes in football or so-and-so scores all of his runs on this side or so-and-so, you know. But I think you're right, both of you, that there, there does need to be some effort at refining some of this stuff and, and making sure that it's it's finding the audience it needs rather than thinking that it does that job on its own. But anyway, that I suppose is is, is a part of, of what IBM are, are working at at Wimbledon this year. But let's, um, let's broaden... The lens on Wimbledon a bit. The big story in the last couple of weeks around Wimbledon has been the withdrawal of rankings points. This is to do with the uh, the ban on players from Russia and, and Belarus. Um, Tom, what, I'm wondering what you think of this from a kind of sports news perspective, because you know it, it's highly notable. But what does it actually do to the appeal of Wimbledon? We've mentioned several times, a lot of Wimbledon fans are coming to the tournament and it's the bulk of the tennis that they will watch in a given year. But at the same time, the reason it has that prestige is that it's the tournament that everybody wants to win. And if you chip away at that even a little bit, does it expose kind of vulnerabilities? What do you, what do you think on that? I think maybe overseas that might 
the latter might be the case more than in the UK. I think in the UK, I don't think there's been much negative media or coverage of the decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players because broadly people think that it could be a bad idea to watch a member of the royal family or whoever it is hand over a trophy to potentially a winner of a, a tournament is from Russia. And that side of it is sensible. Obviously, the player side of it, you might lose out on a few players and they might use it as an excuse to play a tournament that perhaps they're not particularly good at. Hello, Anomi Osaka. But I don't think in the UK there's there'll be that much thought paid to it once it starts. I think a much bigger problem if, if the tournament misses perhaps two of the bigger UK stars who are going to maybe not play through injury. But that, I mean, that's something that can happen in any given year. And we went years and years and years without even having anyone that was good enough to win it. So Femmer Adekanu doesn't make the first round if Andy Murray doesn't make it into the first round you might not get that level of interest initially. But the other thing about Wimbledon is that, as, he, as Steve said, it's always been very good at finding stories. There's always something with Wimbledon that because it's got the backing of a big organisation like the BBC, they can just find those stories and tell them so well. I don't fear for a, its prestige being chipped away at because it hasn't got any rankings points. I don't think the casual tennis fan cares about who's world number one. They care about who's providing entertainment in front of them on any given day. And I imagine probably one of the most watched video moments in Wimbledon history is Cliff Richards singing in the rain. Like, it's not really about the tennis. It's a kind of unique tournament in in that regard. And this year, probably a little bit of one-off. Maybe you might see some initial grumbling about a lack of star presence, but that will soon be forgotten as soon as you get into the middle of week one and definitely into week two when there's been enough time for all of those kind of various different storylines to emerge and be told. I remember Grabya, the, the digital video clipping specialists. Um, uh, one of their early stories that they would tell was that the most viewed social clip, social video that they shared in a year or produced in a year was David Beckham catching a ball in the crowd at Wimbledon. People who are attending the games is is, is as much of, of, the, of the appeal as what's going on, or is, is a huge part of the appeal anyway, along with what's going on on the court. Um, I think, you know, I think you're right in terms of Wimbledon, whether it's this year or going forward, I think the rankings points thing might be a bigger story in terms of the fissures that it exposes within the ranks of tennis players. So whose motivations lie where. Some For some people, being high in the rankings is important because of commercial deals they might have some people that's what motivates them and they want to be the world number one they want to be seeded in every tournament and all the rest of it and for some people they just want to win Wimbledon or they might be further in their into their career and that's the thing that that ultimately is is what they're sticking around for it's interesting that the kind of the Wimbledon brand Steve and that this uh continuous improvement that has been kind of a hallmark for for at least the last kind of 10 years. And you mentioned um, Alexandra Willis there in, in some of your early comments, who is moving on to the Premier League in the autumn, but has been a big part of kind of, you know, projecting this kind of self-confidence that the Wimbledon brand has while also integrating innovation kind of gradually year on year. And, you know, you have this master plan concept where we know five, 10 years out, kind of how SW19 is going to evolve. How significant do you think all of that is in in putting Wimbledon in this slightly different place from a lot of other tournaments and a lot of other sports properties in this time of considerable change well i think it's aware of it is a little bit of an outlier and it is quite keen to preserve that sort of status and i know they've said that the only real 
sort of comparison they can think of to themselves is Augusta National in terms of how important the venue is to to, to the overall event and, and the cultural importance of it. But with that in mind, I think it is, it, it's always looking what's the next thing. There's always talk of something happening on the grounds, whether it's the two roofs, we've heard new show courts, there's a slightly controversial expansion across the road that they're, that, that they're currently planning. And one of the new things this year is um, plant-based cream for your strawberries. So it's willing to move with the times. And I think, again, because it has got that roadmap, it's in quite a good position. Don't forget, it was one of the few events that actually had insurance against cancelling because of the, the pandemic. So it's it's very aware of, of of its place and what it needs to do to to make sure it's here for, for years to come. And, and just one, you know, what, what Tom said, I think in terms of domestic audience, Wimbledon is as much a cultural event as it as as it is sporting. Even the current the type of coverage that we see reflects that. Sure, when you're watching the tennis, you get you get proper insight into into, into what's happening on the court. But everything around it, it it's a mixture of the of the, of, of the two elements. I think internationally, sure there's not the same uh it's not, not the same level, but I think a lot of international audience know what a big deal it is in, in Britain and that's why they like it so much because they, they probably think it takes over the country, like in terms of if you saw some of some of the coverage, it doesn't obviously, but so women's keen to do it, it's very forward thinking and it, it's very it, it knows it has has to uh marry the sorry, balance the the challenge of commercialism and, and, and perhaps the uh, the principles on which the tournament was founded. Um, and this year, is, uh, as they were keen to tell me, it's a hundred years of uh, centre court. So they'll be uh, they'll be celebrating that. I love that Augusta National comparison. I think that's uh, I think that's really spot on. Is you're right. Like the presentation of it is more like I don't know last night at the proms than it is. Um, first day of the MLB season <laughs> but they've been very good at bundling stuff that's just part of the ritual of it has become part of the brand you think of the queue and you know these are things that are other sports events are challenges but at Wimbledon are, are kind of assets well, well, but again one of the things they're pointing out was it's the return of the queue uh, <laughs> so, so they've, they've scrapped they scrapped the uh, the online ticket ordering system they had they had last year in in favour of uh, waiting outside. So uh, and that's a yes, good thing. They, they're, they're very <laughs> they're very adept at it. Tom, what would you be interested to see from from Wimbledon in the years ahead? I guess one of the kind of regular things that you can hit Wimbledon with is that it doesn't produce enough of a gravy train of talent. Like we, I feel like every kind of British success story has been in spite of the the LTA in um, in in recent times. I mean, maybe Emma Redkarnu is slightly a bit more of a product of that, but I'm not sure how true that is. Andy Murray definitely succeeded because he went and took himself elsewhere. And Wimbledon, it's one of the four major tournaments of the year. It generates lots of money. Some of that goes to the LTA, and more of that should produce better tennis players. We're a country with a lot of participation comparatively, but are regularly outperformed by smaller nations on in that in that field. And that's partly to do with lots there's lots of factors that go into that. But it, that's that's kind of where I'd like to see because there's always more interested in Wimbledon, at least in the UK when there's a British player with a chance of winning it. Maybe we'll get lucky and we'll have ten years of Emma Raducanu being good enough to do that in the women's in the women's tournament. Um I was lucky enough to watch Andy Murray in his prime and that made watching Wimbledon a lot more interesting. But I also saw the years where Tim Henman 
struggled to reach the semi-finals and broke everyone's heart by losing to someone rubbish in the last 16. Uh, so that that's where I feel like it could and should do better. Hey, my primary school years with Jeremy Bates. Now that is, I mean, Tim Hemman was a quantum leap forward compared to early to mid-90s. Anyway, um, interesting picture there, sport and culture and participation and how all of those things fit together. Lots of questions, lots of Things that, you know, apply to a great many sports, including, segue of all time here, soccer in the USA over the next half decade or so, or in fact a decade, which is um, the length of time that Major League Soccer has signed with Apple. It's Apple's most significant deal, I would suggest, so far in sport. News of it broke just after we finished recording last week, and actually the guys over on the Streamtime podcast, Chris Stone and Sports Pro CEO, Nick Meacham have done a pretty good job of, of unpacking the kind of wider context of the deal in, in terms of, you know, the, uh, the, the media picture and, and all the rest of it and what it, what it might mean for Apple. On that side, we've kind of been following the breadcrumbs for a little while, but Major League Soccer's place in this deal is interesting, I think, in the context of, you know, the US hosting or co-hosting, lead hosting a World Cup in 2026 the general growth of the sport, some of the other things that have been going on in the States over the last few years. What were your reactions, first of all, to that Apple MLS deal? Initially, I was like, oh, wow, massive, big deal. This is pretty cool and might be really defining. And then I looked into a little bit more and actually thought like, is this going to hurt MLS maybe more than it helps them? Yes, obviously, you're going on a big platform, you are working with a massive company, which has reach into lots of people's pockets and devices and smart TVs and stuff. But you are essentially going behind a paywall. And while it might do some non exclusive rights deals outside of that, to make sure it's got some broadcast presence. It's not going to have like, I don't, will it will it mean it struggles to grow as a local sport too? So like there's the, there's no RSN element of it anymore. There's not going to be any local blackouts. But how do you then grow without that? It will have to be the case that they're very reliant on Apple to channel people towards that towards their local teams and I'm sure there's going to be lots of clever ways they can do that. Will it work for MLS to to grow as a league to take such a big swing to one side of the uh digital traditional broadcast distribution model? I guess was one question I had. And the other was, what exactly do like, Apple think that they get out of this? Like, I get that it's a kind of sport that's popular with younger audiences um, and it will mean that people have to buy Apple TV subscriptions or the MLS Plus, I guess that's what it's going to be called, subscription. But is it going to be a, is it going to be a big revenue driver? Like the people that are most likely to buy a subscription will get it included in their season ticket. So what's the kind of, what's the model there? Um, maybe over time that will become more obvious, but those were my initial questions uh, when I saw it. TBC, I, jury's out for me on whether or not I think this will be a good thing. But definitely interesting, nice to talk about and commentate on in the, in the sports business world as a kind of actual thing for fans and for mm. the league. Not sure. Steve, I guess the, the the two bits of it, just to add on to what Tom said, that will be well worth following. One is well, how this kind of interacts with the domestic linear deal for MLS and how the global element of it, you know, what that does for the MLS brand 
because you you have a comprehensive global deal. So we are just as capable of getting a subscription in this country as um, as you would be as a, a fan in the US, and you'd have the same kind of access as you'd get in, in the US and Canada. The other side of it is. <laughs> are Apple kind of playing with models a little bit as well? Because that $250 million a year is a lot of money for MLS. It's not a lot of money to Apple. And while they don't tend to kind of throw money around willy-nilly, you know, this is kind of a bit of R&D spend for them, isn't it? $250 million a year, compare it to what they might spend on product development, what they might even be spending on original content, as I think Nick pointed out in stream time on, over on Apple TV+. Plus, They can try a few things out. Yeah, it's a drop in the ocean, really, for for Apple, and I think that's being generous. Um, in terms of MLS, I mean, ratings for MLS games aren't really that that high anyway, so you do wonder what the, the potential loss of those games from, let's say, traditional TV will be. But I definitely think it's important that they do supplement this with some with a, a at least you know a, a one linear TV deal just to keep it in people's people's minds, but. I mean, first, the MLS has been a series of long-term bets throughout its history, and it's come a, and it's come a long way from the early days where it had to almost pay for for access to cable television. So, it might it probably regards a ten-year deal, and the, and the certainty of that revenue gives it another decade to grow grow its audience. It also might feel there's a bit of prestige to be associated with Apple for it to be, have this level of confidence for it to be its its first marquee sports signings so you could argue there's not really a lot for MLS to to lose in, in terms of what it has you could argue that perhaps it might lose it, there might be an opportunity cost it's a 10-year deal we've got a world cup roughly halfway through that through that deal so if the sport does, does grow in popularity or then it's going to be you know it's, it's going to miss out for the, the half that deal it's probably weighed all that up and thought, thought this is worth it so I think if it does get some sort of linear coverage alongside it, then it's probably not a bad not a bad model. And the other thing is, MLS it's quite it's a relatively youthful youthful league as well. So the, the typical fan will know about streaming if they've got an iPhone. I think I can't remember what it is now, but I think you get like six months of Apple TV free, so you definitely have access at least initially. If you're as Tom said, if you're a season ticket, you get you get hold of it. As for Apple, it's perhaps the, the next logical step in terms of what it wants to do do with sport. It's done that initial foyer with MLB, and I think now with the MLS, it's it, it's now showing that it can do a a whole league if if it wanted to. And I think it's going to be good for a, from a global point of view. You know, at the minute, I mean, I lose track in the UK of which channel MLS is on. Sometimes it's on Sky, sometimes it was on Free Sports. You know, you're going to know where to get it from. And as you said, it's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things for, for, for Apple. It's got something to that it can it can experiment with, and oh, of course it could sell the rights in in a couple of years. But it's definitely evolved in sport for another decade, <laughs> so there there is that, and I don't think it's going to limit limit itself to this. Yeah, and I think that the whole sports play for Apple is interesting in how it evolves because obviously they are now getting into content and live content at that. But you know, for all of these bigger tech companies that actually provide your digital, your whole kind of digital experience, digital platform for you, the number of devices that you're interacting with stuff is much, much broader than it was even kind of five or 10 years ago. And I think that that will be, I don't know, the funnel or the the, the kind of through line for people from where they want to learn the score to where they want to watch stuff is, is going to be interesting, particularly around that World Cup, because that kind of folds the deal in half almost. I know it's in, in the earlier stages, but... 
you know, you're three years in, you have a World Cup in the US or primarily in the US, and then maybe people will start using their Apple device to learn scores and maybe Apple will tell them, hey, uh, Major League Soccer, that's worth checking out as well. Um, Tom, we saw the host cities announced for uh, the 2026 World Cup. There weren't too many surprises. There's no Washington, D.C. Two games in Texas, one of them in Houston and one of them in Dallas, which might not be the wisest thing in uh, the middle of summer. But all of those questions lie ahead. But what what are your thoughts on what the kind of 26 World Cup represents, first of all, in the context of this deal and more more broadly in the context of, of the game in North America? Firstly, the Washington thing did surprise me. If, and then... I thought about it a bit more and realised that they'd have to probably play the games at wherever, was it FedEx Field, where the the commanders play? And considering the current state of the ownership there and the status of some several lawsuits and things that aren't the most edifying to talk about, maybe maybe smart not to not to worry about Washington. So yeah, I mean, the host cities are host cities, aren't they? Like, you're great for them. There'll be some logistical challenges, I imagine, about, yeah, as you said, games in summer in, in hot places. But then there are other games taking place in Mexico, which has hosted two World Cups before. So I don't think too much sleep should be lost over like over that particularly. In the context of this, in the context of this MLS deal, in the context of just a general growing appetite amongst like younger audiences in the US for for football, it's definitely a a mod like a, a kind of exciting time i think if you're working in that in that industry over there like there's a lot of things that you can be a lot of different avenues that you can take that interest in and a lot of different ways you can explore it and the content creators of this world are going to have a fun time in that space in the next decade or so Uh, especially as you've got that interesting kind of continued migration from the from mexico into the us one of the biggest like growing areas is like spanish language um football broadcasts like Univision clear up during on a Champions League night in a way that the English language channels could only dream of. So, so yeah, it's kind of there's a, there's a lot of things coalescing all at the same time, um, which I think makes makes for a, makes for an interesting thing. The only thing I'm like slightly concerned about about that tournament is just the amount of, the amount of games. There's going to be a lot of games and a lot of games that aren't going to be very good because there's going to be some bad teams. So you, you could end up with this like bloated tournament spread over vast swathes of the country, which don't feel very joined up. And that will be, I think, the the big challenge for, for all of this is to make that feel like it's kind of unified as opposed to what could happen, which is you've just got disparate events happening that people don't really care about. So that, that I think, is the challenge, the challenge for everyone, the challenge for the MLS to make people to grow football challenge for us soccer to be competitive challenge for canada to be competitive and make sure it feels like one thing as opposed to three things where one country cares about it way more than the other but has way less games Mm. yeah i think that uh we're gonna hear particularly as we have a world cup free summer um with that tournament happening in qatar much later this year i I think we'll hear more of those stories as the summer goes on but yeah it does feel like a an interaction in, in US soccer between kind of hard numbers and soft factors. I think that MLS Apple deal is, you know, that's possibly true of that as well. Um, we do have some US soccer themed stuff on the site or some America and soccer themed stuff on the site, I should say. We've got a very interesting interview with um, Cindy Parlo Cohn, who's the president of US soccer, re elected a couple of months back. And she spoke 
to Sam Carp. And, you know, I think what jumped out at me from that interview, guys, was the extent to which the discussion about equal pay has kind of occupied the minds of people at US soccer and that this is now really a big opportunity to reset. And I think she said, you know, the equal pay litigation has affected everything we've done. It's affected every member of the staff at US soccer. So to finally have a resetting of the relationship with our players and to have labor peace and be aligned contractually, but also in spirit is to move the federation forward and to grow the game. It's just a new day, quite literally a new day. And she, you know, hinted at some new partnerships and investments ahead, Tom, as well. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a kind of a line in the sand at the moment, um, especially with the women's world coming up coming up next year. I feel like it's something that kind of needed to happen. My reading of that feature as well was just I was taken by what having a female in that role has meant. A lot of the problems arose under a male leadership of a of a national governing body with regards to the treatment of the women's team. But she was able to come in and offer a different voice, a voice of a former player, a, vo- a voice who like listened and the players believed she was listening, was part of being able to achieve that. And it's and it's definitely got to be, it, it can't be sort of understated how important that agreement is and what it means, not just in the US, but everywhere. I mean, I think we, there was another uh, announcement earlier this week or uh, end of last week that... The Spanish FA had agreed a, a similar kind of deal for for its women's players. Like we've had it in Norway, I think we've had something vaguely similar here, although not maybe not quite as um, impressive. But it's it, there's there's yeah, it's a it's a trend. It's something that needed to be addressed, and the fact that um, the the players came away feeling pretty happy about it and have said so publicly, I think that kind of it says what it needed to say about that whole episode. Yeah, and I think as well, as important as it was to treat those players with with the respect and with the recognition that they deserved, it now gives US soccer an opportunity to combine the kind of rampant success story that is the US women's national team with kind of everything else that's going on in US soccer and not to be at odds with that team and to you know be able to take the whole community forward, so to speak. Uh, American influence in uh, soccer also reflected in Ed Dixon's piece last week about investment in European teams. That looks set to continue as well, just as we're speaking. US businessman John Texter, founder of Facebank, he's in advanced talks to take over Olympique Lyonnais and also the women's team, the European UEFA uh, Women's Champions League winner for 2022. US influence in the world's most popular sport is all set to grow through the 2020s. But let's uh, let's leave it on that topic for today. Uh, and before we go, just quickly dip under the radar. Steve, any stories from the past few days that you think have been missed or are going to become more significant uh, in the time to come? Well, I don't know if this is a, a significant story, but it's certainly an interesting one. And it, it sort of reflects one of the big industry trends over the last 12 months and even longer. And that's EA Sports has indicated it's going to launch a game based on college American football next year for the first time in a decade. And what that means is in the current climate, it can negotiate the license deals it needs to in terms of player likeness, in terms of the getting things that align with the teams. Obviously, it's quite a fragmented landscape in terms of conferences and individual colleges 
And uh, I know it was a, a fun, fondly remembered series, and lots of people were unhappy when they could, they couldn't make it anymore. But it just ran into too many legal difficulties and and complex licensing arrangements, and it was decided it was better off not not to bother. But it announced that I think it was last year, or this year, it was going to come back. Obviously, with the NIL legislation in the US, means it can pay some of the athletes for their likeness to to be used. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be. Make a lot of people, lots of people happy. <laughs> um, I'm sure some of those people will work in the commercial departments at, um, at American universities because the penny will have dropped with them that by involving the athletes in in the kind of revenue share, they're able to do certain things that they weren't able to do 18 months ago. Can't remember if this is apocryphal or not, but I think there was a, a former US college player who was playing with some mates and saw himself in the game, and that was one of the things that triggered action to to stop ea from publishing ncaa football but i could be wrong about that one tom anything from your side yeah it's a little bit older this one but um it's a it's a a right steal the the big three so the three on three uh basketball league owned by ice cube agreed a like it's a, a broadcast partnership with a platform called via and i mean if you go on via it's a, it's a sort of Looks like a fairly kind of run-of-the-mill streaming service that you can pay for. It's got some interesting channels and some interesting some interesting content. But the the thing that's picked this out picked this out for me, or particularly interesting for me, is that it describes itself as a black-owned streaming platform. And I think this is I mean this is a bit much bigger narrative in the US than it is here. So uh, for, forgive me, our American listeners, for um, for butchering any any of this kind of analysis but big three obviously black owned business via black owned business there's there's been a lot of kind of conversation around the fact that uh, in the u.s economy a lot of money comes out of the african-american community and isn't and doesn't go back into it and internally there's a drive to make to to change that and to put money back into black owned businesses i mean i remember watching a, a documentary with another rapper actually killer mike uh, talking about how the African American community could keep the money in that, and this is a, an example of that, and a, and a kind of a leadership role taken by Ice Cube in doing so. So, what happens to Via? Where it, whether it's able to expand that, um, it will be interesting to see. But it just stood out as something a little bit unique and not something that I've seen a lot of in the in the sports industry. Fascinating stuff, and and yeah, I think uh, important story to follow over the next few months and, and see how those how that partnership develops. One from me, again, a little bit older, certainly uh, I think it probably had begun when we were talking last week, but the uh, IFAB trials, International Football Association board trials um, on behalf of FIFA with rule changes in soccer, I think could be quite significant. They're trying kick-ins, which I don't know if those will take off, but they're also trying a countdown clock, 60-minute countdown clock to replace the 90-minute kind of referee-adjudged stoppages system that has existed in football since the day dot they're also trying self-serve free kicks so you can take a quick free kick to yourself if you so choose to keep the game moving and i think like rule changes you know minor part of things from an industry perspective but they can be the seeds for something bigger and i i think it's an underexplored thing that the back pass rule introduced the same year as the premier league and the champions league uh, kind of created a lot of what we think of as, as modern football or certainly made a lot of what we think of as modern football possible and the kind of constant circulation of very fast players <laughs> all kind of grew from there. 
this. Um, one thing that really ir irritated me rationally was a couple of years ago, FIFA, um, the video game, had a uh, had a story mode and had a flashback to the 1960s and the back pass wasn't implemented. <laughs> so uh, I uh, got irrationally angry at that. A whole podcast, maybe not for this audience, but <laughs> it's possible on the uh, the intricacies and the history of, uh, of, of the back pass rule and what might have happened if it had never been introduced. But anyway, um, I think we will definitely lose people if we go any further down that rabbit hole. So we will call it a day uh, for this edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. I will say thank you to Steve McCaskill. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks as ever to Tom Basson. Uh, thank you, gents. And thanks to all of you for listening. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. We'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye.